0: To sort of recap, the king had a plot against him, freaks, and withdraws from politics. He basically puts Haman between himself and everything else. Haman, of course, gets crosswise with Mordecai and convinces the king to issue a decree allowing all the Jews to be killed. Esther, of course, is a Jew. And so when her cousin Mordecai Comes to her and says, You need to intervene with the king. She says that I have not been asked to come into him, and anybody who tries to come in without being asked, if he's not accepted, he gets executed. This, by the way, is of course a reaction on the part of the king to the assassination attempt. So they have a three day fast, Esther and the Jews, and she goes into him, not looking her perky best, but unbidden. And he looks at her and he can tell that there's something wrong. And, of course, he accepts her. And as we said last time, the chances of him not accepting her are virtually zero because he has just gone through the process of getting rid of a queen. And it's taken him a long time to get another one. And quite frankly, he doesn't want to do that. She invites him and Haman to supper the next night. Now, this puffs up Haman because Haman doesn't realize what's happening to him. But it also freaks out the king, because Esther has not been with her husband in a month. So for her to come into the palace unbidden and saying, hey, big boy, it's been a long time, that would be completely understandable. Out of order, perhaps, but completely understandable. But when she comes in and doesn't say, hey, big boy, it's been a long time, but she says, I want you and Haman to come to dinner, that sort of... Pops his antenna up. I can understand why she wants me. What's this Haman guy doing there? And at that point, he realizes that by putting Haman between himself and the politics of his empire, he has become irrelevant. The business where he can't sleep at night and he goes down and looks at the archives, one of the things he's doing is he is realizing, ugh, i got a problem here. Who else is there that I might elevate to sort of dilute Haman's power? Because right now, Haman has got all the secular power, and I am now sort of suspicious that there may be something going on between him and the queen. So now he's involved not only in my empire, but he's involved in my bedroom, perhaps. I don't know that that all literally goes through his head, but he is suspicious. If not suspicious, he's certainly uneasy, because he's realizing that things are kind of out of his control. He finds out about the assassination plot in Mordecai. Haman at that point comes in, and the king says, what should I do to honor somebody who has done me a great service? Haman, of course, being puffed up, thinks, what's he gonna do to honor me? And proceeds to describe, let him put on one of your royal robes, let him ride a horse that you've ridden, And if the king is already uneasy and suspicious, what Haman has done is exposed his inner dream, which is, I want to be king. So what happens then is the king says, whoa, this guy is too powerful. He's perhaps involved with my family life. We need to do something to sort this out. So they they go to the dinner, and during the second dinner, Esther reveals that she is a Jew and reveals that the king's edict is to kill her and all her people. So now the king is basically in full-blown paranoid mode. He realizes he's lost control. Not only has he lost control of the levers of power of his empire, but this guy Haman has even conspired to come against his wife. So when he leaves the room... He is leaving because he realizes that he has really got a problem. He wants to get out, clear his head, and so forth. Comes back in, finds Haman pleading with Esther and falling down on her couch. Immediately jumps to the conclusion that there's perhaps a tête-à-tête. Or even if he doesn't jump to that conclusion, he says so and executes Haman. This is where we are in the story. So now at this point we are in Esther chapter 8. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. Haman's gone. We realize that putting Haman in place was a major mistake. So we're still looking for a chief of staff, but we are not looking to replace Haman. Esther then offers her cousin as a possible chief of staff. One of the reasons that Mordecai is a candidate, and I said this a couple times ago, is one of the most difficult things for somebody in power is to find people who will look after his interests without having to be given orders and without having him present. People who will do what you tell them to do are a dime a dozen. People who will do what you tell them to do competently are a little bit more expensive, but not much. What's terribly rare is somebody who will look after your interest and take initiative on your behalf in the absence of orders. That is valuable. Mordecai has proven himself that he is such a one because when he discovered the plot Big Tan and Teresh against the king, he took steps to quash the plot, but he did that at some risk to himself. Because in a court like that, if there is a rebellion brewing, coming down on the wrong side of the rebellion is lethal. You can certainly try and not be involved, and sometimes that works. But what Mordecai has done is he's come down on the king's side without being told to do so. So the king now knows that this is someone who will do what's necessary to protect my interests even when I'm not there. So that's what makes him a candidate for chief of staff. Verse 2. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther said, Mordecai, over the house of Haman. So Esther is staying in the palace because she's the queen. She's with her husband. She has been given, as part of her estate, Haman's estates, which would have been extensive. So what Esther does is put Mordecai in charge of this estate that she has now been given. And of course, Mordecai, having the king's signet ring, is now chief of staff, but I will suggest with much less power and authority than was given to Haman. Verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. All right, now, let's get the situation. Esther has indeed come before the king again, unbidden, because he holds out the golden scepter to her. She is also still, again, in an emotional state. Before, she had fasted for three days and probably didn't look her best, and now she's got mascara running down her face and all that kind of stuff and still doesn't look her best. From the time that Haman gets taken out until this vignette that we are in right now is give or take three months. The decree that went out to kill the Jews went out during the month of Adar. The next decree which is going to be signed as a result of this vignette goes out in Sivan. So there's a three-month hiatus, if you will, between, I don't know how long between Haman's decree and Haman getting taken out was, but it isn't long, okay, we're not talking about months, we're talking about days. This next decree that goes out is three months later, why is that important? Because remember, once the king signs a decree, it cannot be undone. And the king is no friend of the Jews. His wife is a Jew, so he got to deal with that.' We've got a Jewish cousin-in- law. he's got to deal with that, but he's no real friend of the Jews. So what he has done is he's basically taken Haman out of the equation, and then he has just dropped the matter. He has done nothing about, the decree that is still floating around out there. So what Esther is coming before him to do is to get a second decree sent out that's going to back out the first decree. Now, she can't simply revoke the first decree. That's not possible. So she's coming before him again, unbidden, again in an emotional state. I will suggest that at this point, his antennae are just going, bonk, what's going on? So Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hammedatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people, or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? This speech is important. And what she's doing is she's saying several things. First thing she's doing is she is appealing to his interests. Everything that happens appeals to the king's interest. If you want to get the king's attention, you gotta, it's gotta be something that, for the king. So the first thing she does is appeals to his interest. If it pleased the king, and if I have found favor in your sight. In other words, if this is something that you want, and oh, by the way, If you like me. So the first thing she's doing is appealing to him as his wife. The next thing she does is she appeals to justice. If it seems right, if I am worthy, that's justice language. So what she's telling the king is first off she's appealing to his personal interest. The next thing she's doing is appealing to his sense of justice. The final thing she is doing is appealing to power. And she says, I cannot bear to see this evil, and I cannot bear to witness this destruction. And what she is very subtly saying is, hey, O king, you remember the last time I came into you unbidden, and your chief of staff never saw it coming, and you never saw it coming, and the next thing he knows, he's hanged? Well, this is important to me, too. And there is a possibility that you may never see what happens coming either. It's a veiled threat. And what she's saying is, I am not going to stand by and let this happen. If you're in the way, O king, I will have to deal with you. That's the implied threat. It's very subtle. It's not in your face at all. But as I say, she's first appealed to his interest, then she appeals to justice, and finally she appeals to power. One of the things that we said earlier on, is at the beginning of this whole story, she is a young woman. She's still a young woman. It would not be the case that a king would talk to a young girl about affairs of state. That isn't her area of expertise. That's not what she's in his court for. She's in his court to be his wife and his companion. She's not in his court to be chief of staff. So when she's dealing with Haman, she cannot run directly against Haman. Because Haman is operating in his area of expertise, he's doing the stuff that he was hired to do. He's advising the king. For her, a 20-some-odd-year-old woman with no experience whatsoever that we know about, to come and go head-to-head against the chief of staff is a non-starter. She has no expertise, she has no reputation, nothing. So what she does is she takes the arena out of the court and into her bedroom, which is her arena. And she brings Haman into her arena, which is the bedroom, And that's where she cuts him off. But now she has a track record. Now she's proven that she's lethal, she's dangerous. So when she comes in the second time in a replay, if you will, of when she set Haman up and she very subtly appeals to power, that appeal to power has got some teeth behind it. And it's very subtle, it's not in your face and it's not meant to humiliate him embarrass him, anything like that. And only somebody who's really tuned into what's going on would get the threat. But there is a threat there. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. Ding, 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 ding. That's not why he was hanged. So what's just happened here? is the king has just done the same thing that he did in the case of Vashti. Remember when Vashti, he says to Vashti, you know, come on down, I want to show you off in front of all my guests. And she says, you're drunk, I'm not coming. He did a lateral arabesque and he turned it into an affair of state. Called his counselors in. What shall be done to the queen who doesn't do proper respect to the king? He turns a domestic spat, which is, hey, Jack, you're drunk, I'm not coming down there. He turns it into an affair of state. He's just done the same thing here. Haman was not killed for taking out the Jews. Haman was killed for molesting the queen. Haman was killed because the king realized all of a sudden, whoa, this guy's got way too much power. He's between me and everything I hold dear to include my wife. That's why he was taken out. But when he says here in the court, I took him out for killing the Jews, what he's now done is he's done a shift. And it's now possible for him to issue another decree on behalf of the Jews because I took this guy out because of a policy decision. He's very good at this. He does it a couple times. He takes one situation and twists it slightly, and it's a whole different situation. He had this opportunity at the point where Haman gets hanged. Whoa! He wrote this letter, bad policy, let's back this sucker out. He didn't do that. He's waiting three months. And he would not be doing anything if Esther didn't come before him. So he's perfectly content to let this thing go until Esther shows up. And I will gently suggest she scares him. So he needs an excuse to be able to issue another decree. And the excuse he chooses is, Haman gave me bad policy advice, so I had Haman killed. And now the way is open to a different decree. Verse 8. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. What we've got now is the first edict is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring and cannot be revoked. So it is not the case that this edict is going to be able to revoke the prior edict. That's still out there. So what we need is an edict that will effectively undo that first edict without revoking it. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan. On the 23rd day, an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 province, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them children and women included, and to plunder their goods. Notice that this does not back out that first decree. What it simply says is the Jews are now allowed to defend themselves. And oh, by the way, they're allowed to do more than defend themselves. If you come against the Jews and you don't win, the Jews then in turn have the right to slaughter you, to slaughter your families, and to take all of your goods. So it is not simply an edict of defense. It's far more powerful than that. And the idea here is the first edict, which says you're allowed to annihilate the Jews, take all their property, kill all their families, and so forth, was intended to sow terror. It's to give the Jews a year to think about the fate that is coming down on them and make them weak-kneed with terror. That's the whole idea. This reverses that because now, all of these people who have been plotting what they're going to do on Purim are in a position where everything that they have is now in play. It's a completely different situation now. Not only are we going to meet armed force, and not only do they have the right to defend themselves, but if we don't win this thing, everything that we have is going to be destroyed. So terror or terror Now, going back to the half of my kingdom, when Esther comes in the first time and he extends the scepter to her, He says, what's your request? Up to half my kingdom. And we said last time that that's a formula. Half of his kingdom is not really on offer. It's simply a gracious way of saying, what do you you want? Notice that he does not say that the second time she comes in. So the king, the second time she comes in is treating her very warily. First time he's magnanimous, he's open. Oh, Esther, come on in, what do you want? Under half my kingdom. Second time she comes in is, okay, why are you here? Very different atmosphere. Not having that formalism is telling. Then he sent letters by mounted courier riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal studs, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in the city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So you got one day. This is not a general blanket permission for the Jews to go plunder people, one day. Verse 13, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all the peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on the swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Now, understand, we're talking about horse-borne couriers, and you're talking about an empire that stretches from Ethiopia all the way over to India. Now, granted, they're all leaving from the middle, which is Susa, but you're talking a considerable amount of time before the decrees get there, which again is what lends urgency to, wait a minute, old king, it's been three months, what are we gonna do here? Because the clock is ticking. The clock is not only ticking on moving down to the destruction of the Jews, but the clock is ticking on, do we have enough time to communicate a change and for people to take action based on that change? Verse 15, And many from the peoples of the country declare themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. It is not enough to simply have the decree issued. One of the things that you've got to do is you've got to build up a presence. And so what Mordecai is doing is getting dressed up in royal robes to show the king's favor. He is parading around, declaring feast, Big deal. In other words, I am now the top dog. I am now next to the king. I am a Jew. Now, whose side do you people want to be on? Do you want to be on the side of someone who has the king's ear and has obviously got the king's favor, or do you want to continue on this foolish course that you have begun? So this is all psychological warfare. So what he's doing throughout the empire is he is making it known that he is the number two dog, And he is where the king's power lies. And you better think twice about going against my people because even if you win, I will guarantee that there are going to be repercussions later. As I say, it isn't enough just to send the decree out. You've got to make sure that you intimidate the people who want to do you harm. Chapter 9. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same... When the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought them harm, And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. Verse 3. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for fear of Mordecai had fallen on them, even though by edict the empire should be neutral. In other words, the cops are just watching this one play out, however it happens. In fact, they are not neutral. The cops are now afraid of Mordecai, and so the cops are now helping the Jews. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshadatha, and Dolphon, and Ashpatha, and Paratha, and Adaliah, and Aridatha, and Parmashta, and Arishai and Ardai, and Bizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. They destroy their enemies, but they don't take any plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. Notice the change. She has taken his empire and turned it with a wooden spoon. So he's looking at her and saying, Okay, babe, are we done here? Can we stop this? Because he wants to get the empire back into shape. But notice, he doesn't tell her we're done. Because as I say, he is coming to realize, or has come to realize, that if she goes after him, he'll never see it coming. And he really wants to stay on her good side. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's idiot, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. So they didn't get them all cleaned up the first day, so they asked for an extra day to clean things up. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and the 14th day and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. I am at a major division here. I'm going to stop for tonight and then we'll clean the rest of this up. And then next time we'll go through and put the Apocrypha, in the places where it's supposed to be, and we could talk about that then. It's an air closed